Maybe just a quick reminder this morning not to underestimate how encouraging it is for those around you, beside you, in front of you, behind you, to hear you singing like you do. This room sounds beautiful this morning, and so just to pause to reflect, this isn't in Mike's sermon notes this morning, um, but just to pause to reflect and say, uh, don't underestimate what you might do in the hearts of those around you just by your singing, um, as we're all super encouraged to be together this morning. Now to what's written. We'll read this. In 2007, Apple CEO Steve Jobs took the stage at the Apple Conference, Macworld Expo in San Francisco, California, unveiling a device that has changed the lives of millions of people since, continues to change people's lives today. Perhaps you've rewatched that if you're kind of a nerd like me, pull it up on YouTube and watch Steve Jobs pull from his pocket this small rectangular device. And over and over again, he bills it as a music player, a phone, and an internet device. Can you believe it? A music player, a phone, and an internet device over and over and over again. Probably not anticipating the actual impact that it would have. The iPhone, not technically the world's first smartphone, but undoubtedly the one that kind of set things loose in our midst. Pretty intuitive, sleek looking. Everybody wants one, wants to use one. Now we sit in 2023, and who could have guessed that the average American would pick up that device or one similar to it two to 300 times a day? Changes the world, doesn't it? 1,500 times a week, the average American goes to the device, picks it up, three and a half hours each day, the average American goes to the device, picks it up. And this isn't even scratching the surface of what begins to happen once we have it in our hands. What we're looking at, what we're digesting, reading about, looking, sharing with others, all that goes on when we're on our phones. Don't hear this morning a diatribe against mobile devices, just an observation how this one small thing let loose this massive change in the world. Studies are being done now towards the latter end of those points I was making. This isn't even scratching the surface of what begins to happen as we're seeing an image, reading a caption, then scrolling to the next one, seeing an image, reading a caption, scrolling to the next one. I'm going to send that to a friend. Let me pull this up, check an email, right? This is kind of our lives with devices. Studies are being done now to see what kind of effect that's having on our brains, our ability to process information. We're losing, as a people, our ability to focus. We're losing our ability to focus. We're distracted people in general. And as the plot kind of data for that uh, observation and that study begins to drift and trend upward, so too does the graph and the trend among Americans related to this feeling that we have of disconnectedness, disorientedness, Disconnection from actual people in everyday life and what's going on around us. In a world that seems more connected, is billed as more connected than ever, we feel more isolated than ever. This is more compounded in the last three years, obviously by the pandemic and all that's gone along with it, but contextually, in the place that we're in, compounded even more so, as everyone's moving around at a pace that it's hard to keep up with. Connecting with others may be difficult, 
And so maybe you've come into this place and that's kind of your story. I've been in Boston for four, five, six months, been here for a couple of years, having trouble connecting with people at more than just surface level. And so you would acknowledge and I would acknowledge that I have conversations with people kind of on the surface. How's your day going? Holidays are great for introverts like me because I have these built-in topics, right? Did you travel? And then we talk for 30 minutes, right? And so we have these kind of talking points, right? But all of that kind of remains on the surface. And if left alone for long enough, we really feel the angst. Do I really have deep connections, deep relationships? And if you're not one given to the distraction we've talked about or the despair that we've talked about, perhaps you would level with me and you would admit this morning that life for you is just too busy. It's just too busy. There's so much going on. Life is moving at a frantic pace. I really can't keep up. There's something tomorrow, the next day, and the next day. Things are moving too quickly for me to keep up. I don't know if I can handle it all. And so whether distracted or given to despair or the one who feels overwhelmed this morning, this morning in Psalm 16, I want to invite you just in this moment to breathe. To breathe. Kind of unclench your teeth. Let your shoulders drop back. And let's look at Psalm 16 together. And let's gaze upon the beauty of the Lord together. Let's consider who he is, his infinite worth, what he's about, and what that means for our lives this January 1st of 2023 together. This morning we'll see in our text in Psalm 16, we'll see that the Lord is worthy of our sustained reflection. The Lord is worthy of our sustained reflection and that in him we can find our true satisfaction. He's worthy of our sustained reflection, and in him we'll find our true satisfaction. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 16. So if you're new to reading the Bible, you can kind of split your Bible in half. You'll probably end up in Isaiah, somewhere around there. You can turn back just a little bit to the Psalms, this collection of poetry in the Bible. And we're going to be in Psalm chapter 16. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give one to you today. There's a table in the back that says free Bibles. If those run out, we can grab a, uh, one for you. But feel free to take one of those home with you today. And then as you turn in the, book, in the book of Psalms to Psalm 16, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. We're going to read and preach through the entire Psalm of 16 today. So read along as I read aloud. You can read, look along silently. Psalm 16. <clears throat> Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drinks of, drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Today in our text, we'll see that God is worthy of our sustained reflection, that he is our ultimate satisfaction. And we'll see as David, the author of this psalm, kind of grapples with these big thoughts about God, we'll find that David finds that God is the one who sustains him, who secures him. He sustains and secures him. He sovereignly guides him and he satisfies him. And so we're looking at these four aspects of God that David happens upon as he works through Psalm 16, that he secures him, or he sustains and secures him. He sovereignly guides him, and he satisfies him. If you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, something you may not realize in the Bible is its categories or its genres of literature. So as we're looking through the Psalms, what we've encountered here is basically a book of poetry. And in the book of poetry, we find that there is a category, biblically speaking, for tough things, tough sayings, tough thoughts, hard thoughts about God. The biblical poetry provides an outlet as such for authors to say the very things about God that feel kind of weird to say in public, say the things they want to be most honest with God about in prayers and in sayings. We find these things over and over and over again. alongside the right impulse we have to fight for joy in our Christian walk, to be the type of people that walk into a place like this and shake hands and greet one another and sit down kind of quietly, alongside the right impulse we have to, to try to demonstrate and fight for joy in our life, the Psalms give us a category for the type of life that sees us instead in expressing our deepest longings to God, real angst, our fears, our worries, our frustrations, And we're reminded too that in doing this, expressing these real thoughts to God, that we're not left alone to kind of shout out into the void. That God hears and God listens to these kinds of prayers too. And so we'll see David here. All kinds of emotions down the line, fighting to remember. This is the God who sustains, secures, sovereignly guides, and he satisfies. We'll see in the passage here how these themes are interwoven like a needle moving throughout fabric, up and then down. God is the one who sustains. He is the one who secures. He is the one who sovereignly guides. He is the one who ultimately satisfies. Verse one, David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. While we're uncertain of David's circumstances here, we can think back in our kind of childhood stories, maybe our recent biblical reading about David, and think of any number of situations David has been found in where he is in danger. David's always on the run, it seems. Tons of situations we can apply to David where he's in danger, but none of those fit within the exact context of Psalm 16. We don't know exactly where he is or what he's doing. And so we find here a simple plea, a simple prayer to God, a simple request Preserve or keep me, O God. And what a way to begin our new year. If it's all we said to God before we walked out of this place today, kind of entered back into our work week, entered back into regular life, landed on the ground to back wherever we're traveling to, if all we said to God before we left this place was God preserve me, keep me, uphold me, 
we'd find that we would encounter his glory and his grace maybe in ways untold, in ways we never thought we knew we would. And this is David's prayer. Preserve me, God, for in you I take refuge. For a man always on the run, this is where he finds himself. This is the refuge, the safe place that David's find, David finds. It's God himself. And the language here resembles that in the garden. God gives this responsibility to Adam to keep the garden, to preserve the garden. And so the same cultivation we see, the same care, the same attention given to the garden, David is now asking the Lord for that same kind of attention, that same kind of care, that same kind of cultivation and preservation work. God, keep me, sustain me. All kind of stuff is going on out there. All kind of stuff is happening around me. Father, would you preserve me? Would you keep me? The presence of God is for David a place of refuge. God is the place where David runs. God is the best sort of escapism. While we are often tempted to go everywhere else except into the presence of God for our release, David has found in God safety. David has found in God security. God sustains David amid trouble. He upholds David. We find through hardship and all manner of difficulty, through depression, fear, and worry, And in this safe place, this refuge, David recognizes that every good thing in his life has been given him by God. Verse 2, David writes, I say to the Lord, not only are you my hiding place, I'm asking you to keep me. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And here's what I know about you. I've boiled it down to this truth about you. You are my Lord and there is nothing good. I have no good in my life apart from you. You're the one who's given it. We're reminded in the text that the truly fulfilled man or woman recognizes not only the good things that he or she has, but that those things have at some point down the line been given to them. You might think of the very good things in your life, the fruit of your own labor, the products of your own hard work, all that you've earned in this life, and yet it's curious if you were to plunge a little deeper into thought. Ask the deeper question and press it a little bit further. You would ask questions like, how have I been able to obtain all that I have? Who or what do I owe for my strong mind and my sharp thinking, for my abilities and my skill? That love and care and concern I have for other people and the desire to innately serve them, where does that come from? And these questions spill over onto more ultimate questions. Namely, to whom do I credit my very existence? All of this, this meandering through what I've been given, what I'm capable of, what I have, what I'm thankful for, all of it begins and ends with the fact that you and I are here. We're here. Living and breathing and being with one another, with skin that we can touch, voices we can hear. We're here. To whom do we credit our existence? that we made it to another day. We woke up this morning, perhaps after staying up way too late. That wasn't as great as they said it would be. The ball just ended, right? If you were a really smart parent, you turned on Netflix at 8 p.m. and said, it's New Year's, here's the ball drop, right? Netflix has kind of set us up for that, right? But here we are, another day, another year. To whom do we credit or owe our existence? 
that we made it to another day, that we woke up. To whom do we owe credit, honor, and glory for breath in our lungs? My very first car was not something to remark about. I didn't tell many people about it, and I didn't think I ever would, but as I was thinking about this reality, to whom do I owe credit for my very breath, it came to mind, and here's why. I drove a 1990 Jeep Cherokee, sky blue, really pretty. 1990 Jeep Cherokee, and I bought it in probably 2003, and so it was already 13 years old, which if you've driven a 13-year-old car, and and I, I still have recently, and so you know that it's already pretty beat up, right? And so I did my fair share of beating it up even more in high school, and I drove around this beat up 1990 Jeep Grand Cherokee that I love, and the phrase we always attached to it was it had what? Character, right? It has character. The blinker doesn't work, character. Does that need to be fixed? Character. Alternator? Okay, we got to fix that, right? And so we have, we just run through the list. So I have this 1990 Jeep Cherokee, and the thing about it, the heat, the cooling don't work. So I grew up in the southern part of the state of Georgia, which heat maybe, you know, doesn't matter so much, but cooling may be helpful. And so we're driving through summer months just sweating, and I would always take a change of clothes with me because whatever I drove in, I couldn't wear to whatever I was attending, and so the summers were just miserable. But the winters were worse than I thought because even the temperatures in Georgia, if you're driving in a morning to school, are unbearable. But what I would always find in driving to school in this kind of frigid weather with no heater is that I could actually see my breath while I was driving, and my breath would fog the window in front of me, and the defroster didn't work, and so I'd have to do this all the way to Lee County High School, and it was amazing. And it was at about that time that the Lord really gripped my heart, not through that experience, probably in other ways, but he gripped my heart in the same way that I came to know him in a deep and intimate way, and so I was on a search to find him everywhere. And so on the way to school to morning, as I'm rubbing the windshield of my my car with my sleeve, I'm seeing my breath, and I'm asking myself the question, this isn't a great situation. I don't love this, but man, I have breath. I have breath, and I'm wiping it off of this windshield in front of me. To who do I owe honor and glory for that? Who do I owe honor and glory for breath in my lungs? The source and the giver of those good things is God himself. Apart from his generosity, we have nothing truly good. David here in Psalm 16 notices a difference between people who get that and people who could do without. Verses three and four, David says this, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They drink their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David here recognizes two categories of people, the saints in the land and those who run after other gods. Those who acknowledge and reveal that they care deeply and think deeply and ponder deeply about the things of God, the saints in the land. And it's these that David says are the apple of his eye. They're in his vision, in his purview. These are the ones in whom my heart delights. But there's another category of person. The sorrow of those who run after other gods, he says, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David realizes here that there are some who give more than a head nod to God. 
There are those who recognize that he is the very essence of existence, of life itself, who has blessed them with every good thing that they have. And that there, there, is, there are those who have convinced themselves they could do without. We see two categories of people, saints or the excellent ones, in whom David delights and those who run after other, other gods whose sorrows will surely multiply. David's resolve here, it's evident from the text, is not to chase the lesser gods. The rituals they're involved in, the doings that they have in pouring out these blood offerings, I'm not even going to touch it. David's resolve here is to not become distracted. He'll not even utter the names of the lesser gods, much less entertain their empty promises. Rather, he recognizes that God is the one who sustains. He's the one who satisfies, separating himself from this overt distraction. In verse five, he doubles down. In the scheme of the saints in the land, those who delight in the Lord, he counts himself among them. And he says in verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot, he says. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Keeping with this Old Testament theme of inheritance and land, blessing, David recognizes that God has blessed him in unimaginable ways. And so for David, it's not this some ethereal kind of blessing out there, but there are actual blessings in front of him that he can count. I've been blessed by you, Lord. And everything good I see in front of me is from you, Lord. You're my chosen portion. You're my cup. David will lack nothing spiritually. God is his portion that resolves spiritual hunger in his cup, so he'll never thirst. God sustains, he secures, and he satisfies. God keeps those who he loves. He upholds them, and he keeps them safe. David recognizes that this reality encompasses all of life, every bit of life. God's, God, he says, holds his lot. So I'm thinking about the span of my life, the span of my days, and all that's encompassed therein. God says, or David says, God holds that. He holds his lot. The portion of breath then divvied out to David, to you and me, the days that he wakes up to, the activities he's involved in, this is all portioned out by God. The lines, he says, have fallen for him in pleasant places. As he considers the boundaries of his life, what his life has looked like up to this point, he recognizes the Lord has drawn a circle around it. The Lord has outlined what my life, his life, is supposed to be about. God has set the parameters for life itself, marking out the very boundaries of existence. And that fact is what makes the fact that David exists good. The fact that God has outlined the very boundaries of our existence is what makes the fact that we exist good. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you ambled in here not knowing what was going to kind of occur in this space. January 1st, 2023 felt like a good day to do it. Maybe a friend drug you along and said, hey, we should go to church in the new year. Maybe you've been coming for years and this is just what you do. That the expectation on the table when we go to bed on Saturday night is that we're getting up in the morning and we're going to Hope Fellowship Church. But hear this today, when it seems 
in the grand scheme of things, that no one else has taken interest in your life or what you've been up to or how things are going that God sees and God knows. That in one sense, life actually should be other than what it is right now. In one sense, it should. Sin has marred this world. Things are broken, not as they ought to be. And yet, in another sense, in a truth that we ought to level with this morning, is that God has ordained these days and moments exactly as they should be. For you, for me. And those storms roll in, troubles pile up, Suffering may increase. We are pressed at every turn to realize and remember, even today, that God is ever at work. That God is ever at work. So don't hear me this morning say that this will be easy, coming to grips with these realities, these truths about God. But let me remind you this morning that God is faithful. That God's faithful. He will sustain you and he'll keep you. He'll uphold you moment by moment, from weakness to weakness, from strength to strength, and he'll keep you safe. This is who our God is. David recognizes too in Psalm 16 that God sovereignly guides. Not only does he sustain and secure and keep us safe, but he sovereignly guides our life. According to his sovereign knowledge and his power, he graciously leads his people in the right direction. He upholds them as they learn to walk in it. Verses seven and eight read, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David blesses the Lord who imparts to him wisdom, who sovereignly guides him and shows him which way to go. The Lord gives him counsel. For a man of David's social stature, there's likely no shortage of sources anxious to give him good advice. And this is similar probably in your life too. Perhaps your parents are super ready to give you good advice. Perhaps your best friend is super willing to give you a word when needed. Perhaps there are godly influences in your life, some ungodly influences in your life who will not withhold. Maybe you ask or don't ask. But advice is coming at you from all sides. The filter then and the grid by which we see David measuring advice, measuring counsel in his life, is whether or not it is God-given. At the end of it all, all voices considered, David blesses God who gives him counsel. And so I'm measuring the things I hear by the truth that I find in God's word. I'm measuring the advice that comes my way by the truth that I find in God's word. And know this this morning, that the Lord is generous with wise counsel through his word. He's generous. His guidance isn't shut up behind a subscription service, a consultation fee, or locked behind a paywall. It's freely given, available to us through his holy word. For us, the primary source of God's wisdom is his word. It's the Bible which we work through alongside brothers and sisters here at Hope. We share our same love for God and our love for his works and his ways. And we believe that this book, the one we're preaching from today, has stored up in it the very words of life. And so when we stand in this pulpit and we ask that you pull a copy of your, 
your, your copy of God's word to hold in front of you as we're preaching from it. The reason for that is we know that despite what we say or despite what man puts together in a sermon, that it's ultimately the word that preaches. And that the truth of it will soar up in your hearts, in my heart. And that's what begins to change us. And so we want you to see it, to deal with it from week to week. We believe that this book has stored up in it the words of life, that it is the stream in Psalm 1 that you ought to plant your tree beside. That God's word means that much. I think of it in terms often of kind of widening our base. If we're going to figure out how to navigate this life and kind of weather the storms of life, then we're going to have to widen our base a little bit to withstand everything that's coming our way. And God's word holds us there. My wife and I have only been here for eight months. We moved at the beginning of April to take a position here as associate pastor at Hope, and it's been a a crazy good eight months. It's been great. But one of my favorite things I've already realized, and so we've been through one summer, and now we're getting into kind of holiday season, is when visitors kind of infiltrate the city. This may not be your favorite thing. We'll grow to hate it. But we love when kind of visitors are around, right? And one of my favorite things, and so if you're on the train very often, you can spot someone not from here, right? You're sitting on the train, you're kind of going about your business, trying to get somewhere, and you're excited about what's coming forth, and you kind of look to your right, and you see before the train starts to move, someone is standing flat-footed. And you're like, should I tell them what's about to happen? Right? And so the family of, you know, it's usually a family of nine, it seems like, that visit Boston together, right? And so the family of nine is standing on the train and standing flat-footed, and all of a sudden, you know what's about to happen. The train lurches, unless it's the green line, then it kind of... Easy, right? And so, so we're on that. And the train lurches and the person standing flat-footed is like, whoa, right? Falls back a little bit, grabs onto whatever is nearest to them. Usually a whole family kind of doing this move. And you're like, ah. And we've reached a point now, I just like, yeah, that used to be me, not anymore, right? And so we're kind of going through that. But you can always spot kind of a visitor. And, and kind of what you want to tell them, kind of whisper to them is, hey, spread out your feet a little bit. Widen your base a little bit. Get a firmer standing so that what's coming won't knock you back. This morning, as we consider the truth of God's word, as we consider even the truth of Psalm 16, I want the word of God, I pray that the word of God would be for you kind of a sense of widening your base. That even in this new year, as you kind of think through, maybe you're going through Bible reading plans, but you're dreading January 13th when the genealogies are coming. You know, this kind of thing we go through at this time of year. You're kind of considering, what's the word of God? What's my relationship to it? Perhaps that's a posture that we need to adopt. That if I'm going to withstand the craziness of life and all that's coming my way, that I need to widen my base. That I need to dwell deeply on the things of God. If I'm a distracted person or given to despair, if I'm the person that's super busy, then maybe I need to find time in my life, time in my day to spend in God's word. We think time in God's word will send your roots down deep. We think time in God's word will send your roots down deep and that you might experience the goodness, the love, the mercy of the Lord in untold ways if you spend your time there. So recommend it to you. A couple of ways, and I told you about free Bible table in the back there. There are also these journals that are the book of Matthew. And so we're jumping back into the book of Matthew next week. And as we get back into that, these journals in the back have on one side uh, the scripture, the book of Matthew, and then on the other kind of blank journal spots. And there are some free ones back there if you want to pick that up and kind of engage in the series of Matthew as we go throughout it a little better. We find in God's word that the Lord's wise counsel is both timeless and timely. It's timeless 
and timely. In verse seven, David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. It's comforting to me and perhaps to you to know that David is not unfamiliar with sleeplessness. That in the darkness of night, in the quietness where everything kind of hits and kind of lands and I, I can't get over the angst of life or I can't get over this situation that's kind of going on in life, that David's familiar with that spot and he says that it's in that moment that the Lord instructs him. When things grow dark and things grow weary and I don't know which way to go in the night, my heart instructs me. David talks in verse eight about this ever-present consciousness of God. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be, I shall not be shaken. And so we find in David this kind of resolve that the one, the one who blesses me in the night, the one who I'm widening my base and sinking my roots down deep into, this is the Lord that I set always before me, this continual practice, this continual mindfulness that the Lord is ever before me, ever at work in my life. David says, because the Lord is at his right hand, he shall not be shaken. The picture here and kind of the, maybe a picture that we can gather from it is that the right hand is that with which David is doing, most of his doing, and that God is there in the midst of his doing, and that there's nothing that's going to come his way that's ultimately going to knock him back or knock him over, because God's holding him firm. God is at his right hand, and he shall not be shaken. Verses 9 and 10 give this glad response, and we'll push toward an ending here. After all of this, as David reflects deeply, moving aside for the moment, distraction, setting aside for the moment, despair, Setting aside for the moment the craziness and busyness of life, David in this moment says, in light of all of this truth about God, this glorious grand truth about God, therefore, my heart, at the end of the day, is glad. He says, my whole being rejoices, and my flesh, it dwells secure. That at the bottom of it all, if you peel back the layers, go through the craziness of life, Ask me the deep question, consider the deep thought. At the end of it all, my heart is glad and my being, my whole being rejoices and I'm safe with God. I'm safe with God. He says, for God will not ultimately abandon his soul to Sheol or let his Holy One see corruption, that God's not ultimately going to abandon him. That God will not ultimately abandon us. If this verse sounds familiar to you, it might be, because we find it again in the New Testament. And I want you to turn there with me as we push to a close here in Acts chapter 13. So in Acts chapter 13, in verse 35. So Paul preaching here, 
We have New Testament context, the gospel's going forth, the gospel's being preached, and we have this reference back to the psalm that we're in this morning. We'll run back up to 34 and start there. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So he quotes this psalm here, and here's what I want you to zone in on this morning, and here's what will kind of crowd our lives around this morning. As Paul preaches this and cites this psalm from David, what he's indicating is not that David in the moment knew all the nuances of Jesus's earthly ministry or what exactly he would be about, but he uses this verse and employs it here as a point or two, as a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. The holy one that David spoke of in Psalm 16, who will not see corruption, is here in Acts 13, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ who has come. Continue reading with me, 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He died and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. David passed away, 37. But he whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption. 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. So what Paul is painting here with this picture we have from Psalm 16 is this Jesus who has come to do the very thing that the law could not Jesus has come to do the thing that we cannot do by ourselves. And so as we're inundated over the next week or two or month or two of self-help, the gospel message here in Acts flies in the face of it, reminding us again and again and again that no matter how much effort we put into this, no matter, how amount, no matter what amount of fixing ourselves we attempt to do, that it can't be done, that this is the work that Jesus himself has come to do. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the reminder of grace so needed. In a day that tells you to help yourself, that God only helps those who, helps them, who help themselves, this is the message that we have before us, that in his grace, in his mercy, that Jesus has come, that Jesus is the help that we need. And so Paul employs this verse here in Acts 13, using Psalm 16 to kind of give this basis, this groundwork for our lives lived in light of the gospel. David closes out Psalm 16 with verse 11, which is one probably familiar with you in your kind of Bible memory verse game that we play, one we've heard over and over again, and I want to end with it today. He writes in verse 11, Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. After all, all that David has amassed in this psalm, pouring out his heart to God, reflecting on the deep things of God, centering his mind, his heart, on the safety, the security, the sovereign guidance, David ends here, that God is his ultimate satisfaction that there's nowhere else he can run in life, nowhere else he can go in life, that God is the one who satisfies. God is the one who has made the path before you straight. God is the one in whom his presence, there is fullness, no lack of joy. And that at God's strong right hand is pleasure forevermore. 
We are people that come to Psalm 16 this morning, weak and needy. Our attention spans are short. Our capacity for joy is small. Our desire for pleasure, C.S. Lewis would remind us, is weak. We often settle for lesser things. Instead of contemplating the bigger questions of life and the deep things of God, we nibble at whatever morsel or whatever crumb is expertly curated for us behind the glow of a screen or elsewhere. Instead of pursuing joy found in God, deep, resounding, everlasting joy, we spend ourselves, our time and our money on the latest trinket, the next experience, grasping at happiness through those things, though that proves to be as effective as grasping for the wind. We're addicted to temporary comfort and fleeting pleasure. And this isn't you, this is me, this is us. We settle for what seems easy and what for the moment feels best. And yet true abiding pleasure forevermore is found in the presence of God himself. So what am I after here this morning? My aim this morning, as we close out this sermon, you're sitting here today, if there is an ember within you, a flicker of light, evidence of heat, a spark, even a small part of you that's warmed to the truth and love of God and to the message of the gospel, then God helping me, I want to blow over the coals of your heart this morning on January 1st and fend that into flame. That Psalm 16 would ignite the spark that causes you and me this year to prize God above all else. That we would spend our days in the workplace whether marketing or writing or closing the deal or making a pitch or writing code or shipping the product or organizing spreadsheets or restocking shelves or answering phone calls and chasing inbox zero, balancing P&L statements, analyzing lab results, processing patient information, lecturing and teaching that we would do all of it this year to the glory of God. That at home, in our neighborhoods, loving our spouses and our children, our close friends, considering the needs of our roommates and our neighbors, preparing and serving meals for people at home, stewarding our resources well, helping our neighbors and caring for our property, that we would do all of it this year to the glory of God. That we would spend our days as members of Christ's church, singing and praying together, hearing the word of God preached, encouraging one another as we go, in laughter and in hardship. In this room as we worship over a pastry and Dunkin' Donuts coffee as we share in life together around the dinner table and at brunch with those we don't know well yet. In living rooms when community group discussion ebbs on a tad too late for us. At coffee with a dear brother or sister with whom we can share our deepest struggles and our tendencies towards sin. And in fellowship with people we might not even have the blessing of getting to know, if not for the grace of God, that we would do all of this to the glory of God this year. All of it to the glory of this great God who has marked out the very boundaries of our existence. God has you where you are. Hear this. God has you where you are, in the season you are in, the place you're living, the struggles you have, the victories you experience, 
with the people you're around, and he's not far from you. He's not far from you. You can trust him that he knows exactly what he's doing. So how might we respond to a word like this one from Psalm 16? The first would be to take, relation, take stock of our relationship with God. Perhaps you're in here this morning and you're a believer and you've been doing this for years. Perhaps your relationship with God, if we had, had the conversation and kind of felt that out, you would say, maybe that's grown a little bit stale. And for me, I'm trying to figure out the ways to kind of drum up love for God I felt that I once had. And we want to acknowledge that. Taking stock of your relationship with God, what's that look like for you this year? Perhaps you're in the room and you don't know Jesus Christ. And it's a perfectly normal thing for a group this size. For you to come here and begin asking, seeking, asking questions you have about the gospel, about what church is like, about who this Jesus is. Again and again, we want to invite those questions here. Would love to have a conversation with you and to remind you that in this moment, the salvation is availed to you through the grace and mercy, forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. If you're looking for ways to kind of put your life to back, back together, I want to remind you in this moment that the burden of that is not on you. That making your way back to God is not the result of crawling and climbing, kind of white-knuckling your way through this. That the price for your sin has been paid by Jesus through his death on the cross, that the work for you is finished, and you can receive blessing of that salvation this morning. Would love to talk with you more about it. I'll be at the door at the end of service and we could talk about it. Perhaps you came with a friend. They would love to talk with you as well. Take stock of your relationship with God this morning. The second is a two-part and it's simple. We'll keep it simple. It's to read your Bible and meditate on it. To read your Bible, meditate on it. And I'm talking to me. That we would spend time with God this year put away distraction, that we would fight against despair. We would set aside busyness for time with God. J.R. Packer says that meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works, the ways, the purposes of God. He says that meditation is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Samuel Johnson wrote in 1775, as we're considering resolutions and what I might do this year to kind of get this thing back on track, and entertaining the idea of resolutions and failed resolutions as we look four days out from now, right? Why do I even try, he asked. Why do I even try? Why do I even try to drum up resolve in my relationship with God? And here's why he says, why do I yet try to resolve again? He says, I try because reformation, change is necessary and that despair is criminal. I try and humble hope of the help of God. And that's my prayer for you this morning, is that we together might try and humble hope that God will come alongside and help, that we would pray alongside one another, linking arms with one another, in confidence and knowing that through Christ, he already has.